all know that the cloud is a magical place filled with wonders untold and prancing magical unicorns. Or hey, at least that's what we have spray painted on the side of the Datanauts headquarters. But most of us still have one of those big, impressive data center thingies where many financially impactful applications still live out their life, producing TPS reports. Are they doomed to never take advantage of this mythical cloud paradise? Or is there some way we could bring the cuddly cloud to the on-prem world? I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on the Twitters. And with me is my co-host who prowls around the city at night in search of the perfect taco salad, Ethan Banks. He's at EC Banks on the Twitters. And this is the Data Nuts podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packapushers.net. And as I alluded to, we will be talking about on-prem cloudy things. It sounds weird to say that out loud. And fortunately, we brought an expert on that topic to the show. I will make an introduction while Ethan is busy trying to find the perfect taco salad. It's Ned Bellavance. Welcome. Who are you? What is it that you do? Hi, I'm Ned Bellavance. I'm a director of cloud solutions at uh, Nexonet. It's a uh, value-added reseller and systems integrator. I'm also a Microsoft MVP in cloud and data center management. I like to imbibe delicious craft brews and run marathons to get rid of that beer consumption after I've uh, imbibed it. It's like the CICD pipeline for people. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and a fellow MVP as well. So welcome to the show, Ned. And I was on your show a little while ago, the Annexinet. That was fun. I think we had a good time. That's why I was like, this guy's okay. He should come direct cloud solutions here Ooh. on the data knots. Yeah, I got a pass. That that's exciting. I appreciate that. <laughs> Obviously we're gonna be talking about on-prem cloud. In this case, I'll unveil the secret because you read the title to the show already. The intro to Azure Stack. You know, it's this thing that we've been waiting on forever, and now it's a reality. It's available. To be honest, Ned, we, the Data Nods, have talked a little bit about Azure in the past. We've had a show on IaaS. We've learned that it's all about this place that's a public cloud for IaaS, platform as a service, software as a service, basically all your public cloud stuff. Now, how does that differ from Azure Stack? What's the difference there? Right, yeah. So the easiest way to think of Azure Stack is probably as an extension of Azure down onto your on-premises data center, sort of the fog to the public cloud, if you will, if you want to use that metaphor. Foggy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? So yeah, it's really just meant to bring Azure down where you might not be able to run something in the public cloud for a number of different reasons. Some of them can be where you literally cannot connect to the public cloud. It could be your uh, cruise ship, let's say, and you're out to sea and your internet link is eh, maybe not that great, especially in a hurricane. But you still want to have Azure-type solutions on that cruise ship. That would be one potential reason why you would want to do this. I hope um, that when you're on a cruise, you're not suffering hurricanes too often, though. But I, I get the example. I'm with yeah. you mentally. <laughs> okay. I'm, just, I'm hoping that doesn't happen to anybody. One would hope, but it seems to happen with uh, alarming regularity. Okay, so, so you're, you're physically isolated from the network, and therefore public cloud is not viable, but you still want the experience. We'll check that box. Or it could be a situation where you're not allowed to run something in the public cloud for a regulatory or compliance reason. Like you need to keep your data in a particular country, and Azure doesn't run in that country, so you can't house your data there. So that could be another potential reason for doing it. God, I, I call that the Gandalf reason. You shall not pass. <laughs> yes. so, I don't know if that gets me nerd cred or not. Maybe a little. Someone is telling me what I can do with my data, and I don't like that. But that means that potentially public cloud is not an option. And again, I still want still want the experience, but I just can't push the bits, so to speak, into someone else's data center being public cloud. 
Right. So the main thing that Microsoft is trying to do here is give you the same API endpoints that you have in Azure on-premises, let you use the same tool sets you're used to using, whether it's some sort of DevOps tool chain or if you're using PowerShell and their resource manager templates. However you're designing and crafting your Azure solution today, try to make it seamless that you could craft the same solution within your own data center. Okay, so it sounds like it's very close to what you would be dealing with if you're familiar with Azure in the public cloud already. So what are the pieces and parts that make up Azure stack? Just kind of highlight what's there, particularly if there's any differences. I mean, there's definitely differences. Uh, Obviously, Microsoft runs Azure at a global scale. So we're talking like thousands and thousands of servers, whereas Azure Stack, the largest configuration today is a 12-node stack. So 12 nodes versus 12,000, yeah, it's a little bit of a difference there. As far and what as, is the node? You mean like a, a host that, that runs like yeah, a hypervisor? Or a host that node? runs the hypervisor. So a node okay. would be a Hyper-V running uh, Server Core 2016. At least that's what they've said so far. It's still sort of magic and unicorns a little bit. <laughs> but <laughs> from what they've said, the base hypervisor is going to run server core 2016 and Hyper-V. And then it's going to be using storage spaces direct for its storage platform. And that is a hyperconverged solution. So each node is going to be replicating the storage it has to other nodes within the cluster. So there's no centralized SAN or anything like that. And then it's going to be using Microsoft's own software-defined networking components to do NAT and BGP and segmenting all the subnets. This is interesting because it feels like they've put together a whole bunch of components that they've been working on for a while. So the the networking stuff with BGP and so on, they added that uh, a, a while back, and that was like, and I was like, oh, yeah, you got BGP in Windows now. you got a BGP stack that's there. And uh, you know, Hyper-V, of course, as a building block, makes all kinds of sense that they would use that. Uh, the APIs that would be there to be making all this happen. It's just like they've taken all the bits and pieces and parts and said, here, here's a tidy bundle. Now you can run your own cloud. Well, I mean, they had to build all of these pieces to run Azure. So in a way, you can think this has kind of been battle-tested and hardened over the last however many years Azure has existed. Mm -hmm. And now they're saying, hey, we did all this homework and all the heavy lifting of building an orchestration engine and an automation engine and a really nice API and portal. And we're going to kind of bundle that all up and deliver it right to your data center. What are they charging for this? So the cost model is kind of interesting. Azure is a consumption-based model, right? So if you spin up a VM, you're paying while that VM is running. You spin it down, you stop paying for it. Uh, Azure Stack is going to be very similar in that regard. All the consumption from Microsoft standpoint is based on how long you're running a particular thing. So if you spin up a basic VM, the pricing they've announced is $6 per VM's vCPU per month. For a little bit of comparison, if you were running that same VM in Azure, you could be paying anywhere from $30 to $60 per month for the same VM. Yeah, wait, wait, of course- so, so you provide the hardware and you're, it's running on your stuff, right? you're still paying the $6 per month per virtual CPU for the workloads as kind of like a software subscription fee. Exactly. It's a subscription. If you're paying for the software license for the Azure portal, all the hypervisor and Windows licensing that would go underneath that, oh. uh, all of that's sort of factored in. Now, I'll put a caveat on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, th- I think you're about to answer my question. 
if you have an existing Windows licensing enterprise agreement or something, you can use your existing Windows licenses to get that $6 per month per vCPU. If you don't have that existing licensing, then there's an upcharge for the Windows license if you can't bring your own. Yeah, so they got you there. A lot of places do have existing Windows licensing that they yeah. can use. Yeah. And especially if you bought Windows data center licensing, that comes with unlimited VMs you know, per core. So you don't really have to worry about Windows licensing if you have that data center license. And that's like the oldest trick in the book, to buy data center licenses and then cram as many VMs on the box as you can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Interesting. I would. The 12 server limitation sounds pretty limiting to me. You know, 12 physical hosts that I can run VMs on just seems like you don't have to be that big of an enterprise to burn through the capabilities of 12 boxes, I guess. What's their aim here, you know, as far as the size of enterprise? Because an enterprise could say, I'd like to run a cloud, but I've got 1,000 hosts to manage. You know, 12 is not even close. So yeah, 12 servers doesn't seem like a lot to get off the ground. And I think part of that is they announced Azure Stack almost two years ago at Microsoft Ignite. And it's been a nation product for this entire time. And they were like, we got to get something out. We have a 12 unit. They're calling it scale units. So 12 nodes in a scale unit. That's today. They're promising by the end of this year, you'll be able to do 16 nodes in a scale unit. And then you can have multiple scale units in a region and then multiple regions in your organization. So it really does scale up quickly. And they're not limiting what the host is. I mean, you could have a bunch of CPUs and RAM in it and really ramp up the number of VMs you could be running on it as well, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a number of different configurations that are available from the OEMs, and some are going to be more memory-centric and some are going to be more storage-centric. So depending on what you expect your workloads to look like overall, you can pick the mix of hardware that makes the most sense for you. I'd imagine a lot of that scale limitation in this 1.0 GA version is storage related because, you know, depending on how they're replicating the data across different storage nodes, that typically is the hardest part to grow beyond eight nodes, 12 nodes, whatever. And I'm totally just kind of taking an aside here. I'm totally cool with iterative software design. You know, hey, let's start with 12. And obviously that's it's 1.0. Give us a break. You know, I'll give them a right. break. That's okay. <laughs> There's a limitation on storage spaces direct, which I think is what you're alluding to. Yeah. Uh, I think within a storage spaces direct cluster, you max out at 16. Okay. So that's probably why they're setting the scale unit max at 16. And then if you had another scale unit, you could use their other replication mechanisms in Azure storage to get some data over there for fault domain. No, just use DFSR everywhere. Yeah. Obviously rim shot there. No. So <laughs> going back to the, to the nodes though, like, is this, am I bringing the hardware to the equation? Can I just buy something uh, that's already prepackaged? You know, like what are my options for like integrated systems as an example? Well, your only option is an integrated system. Oh, sad trombone. Yeah. So bring your, you're not going to be bringing your own hardware to this party. Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes way more sense. Okay. So Microsoft when they initially announced this, they're like, yeah, you can install this on your own hardware. It's going to be great. It's going to work in your data center. And then they thought about what a support nightmare that was going to be. Because <laughs> there are already so many components to this solution. Trusting their end users to properly install this on random bits of hardware they might have lying around their data center was probably a recipe for disaster. So instead, 
they reached out to OEM vendors and said, hey, if you guys put together a prepackaged solution, we'll help you test the heck out of this thing, make sure it's as bulletproof as we can possibly make it, and then we'll deliver it to the customer as sort of a black box. Here's your Azure stack. Don't touch it. They're leveraging relationships they've already got anyway. Dell EMC, HPE, Lenovo, as I'm seeing as I look through the notes, already companies that will pre-install Microsoft Windows for you. So now it's just, okay, we're going to do Azure Stack. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, they're all at that. Yeah. Out of the gate, Dell EMC, HPE, and Lenovo have solutions that I believe you can either order now or order very soon. Cisco's still going through the verification process with Microsoft, so you probably won't see anything from them until the beginning of next year. And I'm not even sure how far Huawei has gotten down that path. So, okay, I guess that means you really have to start with with Greenfield. or It kind of sounds like you're buying boxes, you got to rack them, and you're setting up like a little Greenfield corner in your data center to, uh, to, to stand this up. Does that seem fair? Yeah, a little patch of green in the brownfield, yeah. if you will, uh, laying down some <laughs> sod. As far as the installation goes, all of these OEMs are including services as part of the purchase. So you're not even racking this gear. Uh, uh, someone from the OEM or someone they partner with is going to come out and do the whole installation for you. Because when you think about it, the equipment doesn't just ship with servers. It actually ships with two top rack switches and an uh, out-of-band management switch included. That's all pre-configured to work in Azure Stack. And you now have to integrate that with your existing environment in some way. So that's part of what the services portion of the purchase is going to be. Wow, they are leaving nothing to chance. They absolutely want this to succeed. When you buy this, they want this to work. And uh, they're taking all the, all the you out of the equation. They're gonna, when they walk out the door, it's going to be working. Uh, yeah, as much as possible. It's very much, we put the warranty void of open sticker on everything. And you don't get to touch any of it. <laughs> Which, I mean, I can see some admins really bristling at and others going, thank goodness, I am tired of dealing with that portion of the infrastructure. I want to do something that's a little more fun. Yeah, and count me in the thank goodness camp because, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I had that fun when I was younger and tinkering with this stuff. But now I'm, yeah, I'm definitely in the let's just make it work so I can start playing with it phase of my career. And that's actually want to end this discussion with a thought from you around what are some major drivers to say, okay, I want to investigate Azure Stack. This is something maybe it's it's worth looking at because what? You know, what are some some reasons here? I think there's two to really think about. One, do any of the major use cases that are outlined in the marketing material apply to you or your clients? So that could be a good reason. And the other major reason is maybe you just like playing with cool stuff and you want to get a glimpse behind what's going uh, on in the world of Azure. That really struck me here is that Microsoft wants Azure Stack to succeed, and and so to do that, they've put in all these constraints around the purchase. So you got limited hardware, you've got uh, services are going to come with this thing to make sure the installation goes smoothly. And I kind of thought about that, and it's like it's like Microsoft gets what maybe OpenStack doesn't. I mean, OpenStack's a you know it, it's an open source project. They're not going to come to your house and hold your hand and put this thing, and that's not the spirit of it. But still, part of the challenge of OpenStack has been just getting it installed and running in, in enterprise environments, and they've needed people to do that, and there's been companies built around making that happen. But Microsoft has built Azure Stack to succeed right out of the gate, and it's not built for you to have to, you know, figure it out and good luck with that. So I, I, I really think they got a potential winner here. What's on your mind, Chris? 
I'll build on that a bit. You know, talking about the fact that you can't bring hardware, you have to you have to buy. And it kind of felt like a variant, uh, Azure Stack in general at this point, felt kind of like a variant of HCI, you know, the hyper-converged infrastructure, because, you know, you're using the Microsoft API endpoint. They are abstracting and controlling the resources for you from a pooling for tenant applications perspective. But ultimately, you're, you're what you're doing is buying and, and subscribing to the software. Uh, so I, I can see... I can see kind of that that meld between do I want HCI where I kind of bring my own software or do I want the software where I kind of bring in some kind of you know integrated solution so it'll be interesting days for sure Well Ned let's dive a little deeper here start right out of the gate where do the cloud management components run with Azure Stack? So in other words, do I have to create a separate management cluster to run all the different infrastructure managers or is it kind of an all-in-one thing? It's all in one. It's all built in, baby. If you come from like a VMware type background, you might think of, hey, I need to create a separate management cluster for all my production clusters. And that's where all my vCenter stuff sits and maybe some core components that I don't want as part of that production. And Microsoft didn't take that approach. Everything runs in that first scale unit. As you expand, I imagine they're going to create the ability to also spread those components out across multiple scale units to lower your uh, chance for failure. But yeah, it's all baked in there. There's no outside thing you have to configure, really. Does that mean that potentially I could harm those as a tenant or or they're logically kind of bounded away through contracts and offerings and whatnot? Right. So there's two portals to Azure Stack. One is the administrator portal, which you would not give your tenants access to. And even in that, you can't actually see the VMs that are running the core management components, but you could potentially do some serious damage in there. So obviously you want to restrict that. The tenant portal is basically exactly the same as the portal you get when you log into regular Azure. That's the level of access you get. You get to create a subscription or a plan and put resources in that plan. And that's kind of your sandbox that you live in. Got it. So really, it sounds like unless I'm connecting through Hyper-V Manager direct to that host or somehow like I've got keys to the kingdom level access. I'm not even going to see the VMs that are controlling this cluster and, and potentially just delete them or destroy them. Right. And I haven't been able to verify this, but I don't even know if you get the username and password, like admin password <laughs> for the hypervisors <laughs> that compose Azure Stack. So you might not even have access to get to the hypervisor view to see those VMs. Got it. Wow. That seems like... Better hope things don't blow up or go wrong because <laughs> it's like, well, it's black, as you said, black box. Yeah. And I'm kind of thinking then, just taking a little bit of a step back from this super nerdy stuff, but sometimes the tech terms are tough, you know, because the terms for this person's public cloud is different from the terms of, other, you know, we talked about that with Janelle Crothers on our IaaS show. We're like, oh, what's what's a, an availability to zone look like in, in Azure world? So what about tech terms as they relate to Azure Stack versus Azure? Is there any differences? Do I need to learn, like, this is called a Hooba jibber instead of a AD or whatever? From a tenant perspective, everything should be pretty much the same. They didn't flip a whole lot of terminology there, if Good. any. Good. But from the administrator standpoint, you do have to get used to some new terminology because you're getting access to some levers that you didn't have before. Stuff like being able to create an offer and a plan, uh, those are the things that when a tenant creates a subscription, they have to pick a plan and an offer, and that controls what types of things they're going to be able to deploy. Can they create VMs? Can they create app services? Can they do Azure functions? You can say, 
for this group of tenants, I don't want them to have access to Azure functions. And the other thing you can do is give them a quota, say, you know, because this is maybe 12 nodes, you might want to say this tenant can only create up to 50 VMs before I cap them because I don't want them to overrun my whole system. Got it. So, Ned, explain some things that have changed here. The, the, the business offerings with Azure Stack, how do those work? Because we're used to regions, but so what is my data center region called? Because it's not like a geographic thing anymore. How does that all work? Well, they still call it a region. So that's your basic element of scale. So you can have a region in a single data center. You could have multiple regions in a data center. But really, the region is the portal. You get that one Azure Resource Manager endpoint within your region. And at general availability, it only supports one scale unit in one region. So really, you can only have one region at launch. I love the irony of a scale unit of one, but and, and, <laughs> yeah. no, that's, that's yeah. not forever. But yeah, I get it. It's just it's just funny at the moment. Yeah, it's just that fundamental building block today. So right, okay. So my data center is a region, and it's the only region for now. For now. So are, are there tiers or subgroups in that? Other you know ways that we can break things up? Yeah, absolutely. So you can create offers for your tenants, and an offer is built out of what they call plans to, you know, use a further level of abstraction. And within those plans are services. So the services would be the compute service, the storage service. If you had SQL as a service, you add those to a plan and then create an offer that can have one or more plans in it. And when a tenant goes to create a subscription, they have to pick an offer. So that gives you a way to charge back to internal resources it's, it's, it's the way you create a catalog of, of things that your customers can consume within your Azure Stack Cloud. Exactly. And this probably makes more sense if, you're, if I also bring up the other thing, which is that Azure has a marketplace where third-party ISVs can introduce new technologies into Azure. And they've now added marketplace syndication for Azure Stack, which means you can browse the marketplace and pull down certain services from that marketplace in syndication and then offer those up to your tenants for a fee of course of course so it's basically it's an app store but for your azure stack well, wait 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 exactly. is there actually is there so that the six dollars a month is an example does that translate directly by micro are they just telling my tenant hey this is the cost and it just passes it along for me because the reason i ask like calculating costs is hard no one really knows what something costs Right. So all the cost calculation is done through the Azure API, billing API, and that's included in Azure Stack. So yeah, it's going to do all the billing cost calculation for you. And if you're running in a multi-tenant environment where you can actually do chargeback, you can actually now just send your tenant a bill outlining all the consumption that they had. And I'm guessing then the only real variable is like the data center specific costs, you know, HVAC, that kind of jazz and potentially yeah. whatever you're paying for that hardware that's on-prem? Yeah, so if you're in like a service provider model, you probably want to work all those costs out to you know the penny if you can. How much do I pay for power and cooling? How much sure. am I leasing this hardware for? And then just roll that into the existing tenant bill. If you're just treating your business units as tenants, maybe you don't need to go down to that level of granularity. Right, because there's probably a line item of this is what the data center costs and the IT infrastructure team or ops team absorbs that. But beyond that, you can take it from the tenant level and lower 
and state, well, this is what we're paying. This is the price from Microsoft. Not my problem. Put your hands in the air. Like, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then pass that on direct, which is interesting because that's it's typically such a challenge to price things and come up with prices that it's kind of nice that someone else has done that for you. Right or wrong, you know, it's still there. Yeah, in my experience, chargeback has always been the most difficult part of, of kind of budgeting because <laughs> everybody goes, well, you already paid for all that stuff. How can you charge me for stuff you already paid for? And that pricing model, you just made that up out of thin air. Now you can actually say, no, this is what Microsoft is charging me. I'm just passing it along to you. Yeah, and I think that's getting easier and easier for people to grasp as subscription services become more or less the norm. So passing those charges along on a, on a regular monthly interval shouldn't be things that are just foreign to everybody because it's not all about CapEx. Now it's about OpEx, and everybody's getting used to that. Everybody loves yeah. the OpEx. Yeah. Uh, Ned, I had a few questions around the – I call them the cloudy terms – Specifically, personas and the portal. So obviously, the persona is no longer just I'm in the Azure portal. I'm building things out of someone else's cloud. This is your cloud. Mm -hmm. And I saw some mentions around the tenant, which we've talked about, and the cloud operator, which seems new. I wonder if you could just tease that apart a little bit. And then I want to talk more about the portal. Hmm. A cloud operator. So I guess, in a sense, you have... The admin portal. So you could have a cloud operator that's responsible for the operation of your entire Azure Stack environment. And within there, you could even have multiple different roles. And maybe this person's allowed to create new offers and plans. And this person's allowed to syndicate new items from the marketplace. And then you could have your traditional cloud operator that's running inside of a tenant. And they have permissions to do things within that tenant. And then it uses the same role-based access control that Azure does. So you can assign roles and rights to pretty much any resource within Azure Stack at the admin or the tenant level. Got it. Because I'm thinking as a cloud operator, I probably don't really have any VMs that I need to put in there or storage consumption. I really just want to literally kind of dictate governance over the, the environment. And I didn't really have to do that at a it's my own cloud level before. I was just I was kind of a tenant within Azure and I would dictate resources within the tenancy not, okay, who are my tenants and what can they do? So I thought that was, that felt like one of the few things that were different, including the portal, the fact that there's the, uh, what'd you say, the Azure kind of admin level portal? Yeah. Yeah. So you are going to be responsible for a certain level of security that you don't have to worry about with Azure because now it's in your data center. So you're responsible for the physical security of that hardware as well as the you know virtual cloud security of it. Ned, how is my local Active Directory impacted if I run Azure Stack? Do I have to do any sort of a conversion like I might have with uh, with regular Azure or, or no? Uh, fortunately not. So you have two identity management options when it comes to Azure Stack. The first is you can just leverage Azure AD. So if you already have an Azure AD tenant and identities in there that you want to use because you're synchronizing them from local AD, you can just associate Azure Stack with that Azure AD tenant and go on your merry way. If that doesn't work for you because you either don't have Azure AD or you're not allowed to connect to Azure, uh, you can use Active Directory Federation Services, ADFS, uh, to create that security association between Azure Stack and your local AD. And you'll have to set up some... Yeah, you can use your local AD credentials and then pass that through because of the Federation. Yeah, absolutely. You have to set up some ADFS servers, but those are not particularly challenging. Yeah, I remember I remember the old days of setting that up where it's like that would have been a huge blocker to try yeah. to federate AD. Now it's more like check a few boxes and 
and go about your business. Yeah, uh, which is awesome because at first I was thinking I was thinking the horror of oh my gosh I have to decom my domain controllers and put them into this twelve node scale cluster that has questionable you know like it, it's one I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, so being able to leverage either of those two options seem perfectly valid uh, moving forward at least for the near term. And you don't have to like update your the schema of your Azure AD or raise the domain functional level or any of oh, those good. tricky things that people look at and go, I don't know what that's going to break. I don't want to do that. Yeah, that that always goes perfectly smoothly as you yeah. upgrade the domain and the forest to some new version of, you know, server 2016. It always goes perfectly fine. Okay, that's good to know. So there's really no impact to prod, which is you know, at the domain controller level, I'm very protective of what's going on. So that's good. Yeah, rightly so. And one last thing, I was thinking, I was watching the Twitters recently, seeing a lot of OpenStack stuff, and I got to thinking, you know, OpenStack got a lot of consumption at kind of the Swift component layer. Everyone wanted turnkey object store. Uh, does Azure Stack let you to kind of pluck out the blob or table or queue storage and say, I want to use that, and I don't really care about the rest of it? It'd be a pretty big upfront hardware purchase to just get blob storage, but the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, all of the Azure storage types are available on Azure Stack. So that includes blob storage, table, queue, and file storage. So they have those four options in Azure, and they'll be available in Azure Stack. And you can just create a public-facing, and I say public in the sense that it's outside of Azure Stack, a public-facing endpoint for your blob storage in Azure Stack. Well, I have a simple takeaway thus far, and it might be the first time chargeback is real and actually charged, because I don't know about you, Ethan, but I've been doing enterprise consulting for a long time back back in the day, and it was always, you start with chargeback as an idea, like, that sounds great, and it morphs into showback or shameback or don't give a crap, you know, like it never <laughs> actually happens. Uh, so now, because you're basically passing the bill along from Microsoft, maybe you can start incorporating chargeback into the enterprise, although, you know, fingers crossed. Yeah, well, no, that was exactly my thought, that running Azure Stack means you've got this way to charge back IT utilization in a really specific and documented way back to your customers. I mean, it, right, like you were saying, chargeback is not a new idea, but it has been so hard to get it right. And from what Ned was describing, Azure Stack sounds like they've included all this functionality to demonstrate IT within your organization being a service provider and not a cost center. There, it's documented. Look, here's the services that we provided and here's how much it costs to consume those services and so on. I really think that's a big deal. Well, Ned, I've learned a lot about Azure Stack, things, <laughs> things I didn't know, but things that are pleasant as well, like not having to you know do a conversion of my DCs or something hor horrendous like that. So obviously... Azure Stack just gone GA, just just announced a lot of anticipation, or, or it's in that process. Uh, so what are we getting with this kind of first pass release of Azure Stack? Right. So Microsoft tried to focus on the things that were most popular in Azure and bring those down to Azure Stack. So amongst those are just Azure VMs, plain old vanilla. Um, there's also Azure Storage. As I mentioned before, all the flavors of Azure Storage are available. Azure App Service, which is what the websites are based on, that's going to be available right away. That's actually the number one most popular service in Azure. So they wanted to make sure that made the cut. Azure Functions actually made the cut, which I was a little surprised by. Wow, that is surprising. 
Yeah, I think Microsoft sees the value in sort of serverless architectures, which is just all kinds of irony when you think about it. But um, (laughs) I can't even get through all the levels of irony. It's like an irony cake. Azure Functions will be available as well. And some backup stuff. Azure Backup is going to be in there. Azure Site Recovery is going to be in there. So a lot of functionality will be in there. Other things will be coming down the pike later. And some things will probably never make it into Azure Stack. There's VM types that are very dependent on hardware, GPU accelerators and such. That's probably not going to make it in. Some of the really big like Azure Data Lake and data warehousing and like cognitive analysis kind of stuff, that just requires so much compute and memory. That's probably not going to make it as an on-premises thing. But I think Microsoft will continue to reevaluate what people are asking for and add the things that make sense. I'm sure if you walk up with a nine-figure check, you can get anything you want. But yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably not going to be. Yeah, I need a four-thousand-node Azure stack. Yeah, it's like why not just use our cloud offering? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I saw a. Uh, I actually saw a lot of mentions of something that that piqued my interest around getting your hands on Azure Stack without buying something potentially. It was the hmm. Azure Stack Development Kit (ASDK). Uh, is this for just developers, or can an IT pro listening to the show kick it around? You know. Kind of what what can we do to what can we do to lab this thing and, and kind of play with it? Yeah, yeah. It's um, when they first announced this, I immediately want to get my hands on Azure Stack and just see what it worked. And it also kind of gave you a little view of how Azure runs behind the covers. So exactly. Yeah, that was exciting. Um, so they came out with what was called Azure Stack Technical Preview One, and that was installable on a single server, so you couldn't do multi-node. And then they came out with Technical Preview 2 and 3. And now they've renamed that install to the Azure Stack Development Kit. So it's something that's existed for a while. Uh, they just had to put a new face on it because marketing. Yep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you can absolutely run an instance of Azure Stack on a single node just to get a flavor for how it works. And, and if you're a developer or an ISV that's trying to create solutions, that gives you a testing ground without having to buy four servers and all that jazz. Um, The spec requirements are, they're not super steep, but it's not necessarily something you would have laying around. For starters, you need a dual socket server. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, that's got 12 cores minimum. That's combined, but still 12 cores. You also need 96 gig of RAM in that server. Okay, so so not home lab. (laughs) (laughs) And they recommend 128, and that's because out of the box, it has 12 VMs already running for all the services. Oh, of course. Yeah, they take up a pretty big chunk of your memory and CPU just to start out with. From a storage perspective, you need a 200 gig OS disk and then four disks that are either running as a direct HBA or running in RAID pass-through mode. And those minimum is 150 gig, but, uh, you know, bigger is better because that's basically going to be your storage repository for the VMs and anything you build. And who has a 150 gig hard drive anymore? That's tiny. Yeah. I know. Well, I guess if you're throwing Maybe SSDs flash. in there. Yeah. 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 Um, as far as network goes, just have a NIC. It doesn't really require any fancy network uh, or stuff. Or Ethan, man. All the server <laughs> storage stuff is like super <laughs> demanding. It's like you just need like a hub. 
10 megabit you know there's nothing coming out of this thing anyway throw some vampire (laughs) taps on there it'll be fine there you go coaxial everything beautiful okay well so it's it's not doing any replication to another node or anything so yeah you're not really input output and and consumption of app at the application level yeah so so not home lab friendly in any way shape or form potentially you could steal your work lab stuff or put it in like a vm oh maybe maybe say So the installer has a bunch of XML files that define the various VMs that go into it and also the minimum specs for the box. You can go in and tweak those XML files to accept much smaller hardware, uh, but there's no guarantee that it's actually going to run if you do that. Yeah, so so if you have Intel Nook or or a Mac Mini, <laughs> just don't even try. Yeah, no, it's not going to happen. Your time. Got it. Okay, interesting to know. I mean, is ASDK the only option I have to kick the tires, Ned? If you wanted to take Azure Stack for a spin on Azure as opposed to trying to supply your own software, there are Azure Stack tools on GitHub, and we can put a link in the show notes to that. And within there, there's a policy module, and what that module does is it restricts the features and functionality of your Azure subscription to only show what's available in Azure Stack. Oh, so basically take your public cloud subscription and say, okay, make this look like Azure Stack and all the stuff you wouldn't have access to just disappears. Exactly. Um, But but you're still at kind of the tenant level. You're not the Azure Stack admin because, yeah, okay, gotcha. Precisely. You're still not seeing the admin portal and all of those kind of good things. I wouldn't be surprised if in the near future, Microsoft releases something, some sort of hands-on lab that you can log into and get, you know, a couple hours of time to dive into it, just because the hardware requirements are pretty high for the ASDK. So do you think, Ned, that this is where Microsoft is heading for running applications on premises, where you're just going to, you're going to build an Azure stack and you're going to put all the applications into that bubble and then you know, kind of move away from ad hoc architecture that we're all been, that we've, the snowflake and traditional architecture that we've been building for so many years. I think as a more general statement, public and private cloud are kind of the way to go in the future. So that ability to just have your underlying infrastructure, very cookie cutter and not snowflake. And Microsoft's is giving you a way to do that by embracing Azure stack. Um, I certainly think other vendors like perhaps VMware and AWS might partner together to have a private cloud solution. I know that rumor has gone around Reddit more than a few times. So I think that's definitely, that should be the future. On the other side, Microsoft really just wants you to have a subscription to something, anything. They don't want you to buy bulk licenses and EAs anymore. Everything should be like recurring revenue and subscription-based. I mean, it puts them in competition with hyperconverged solutions, for example. I think you could make an argument that, well, rather than buying uh, Nutanix, I'm going to buy Azure Stack and you know go that direction. You, I, I mean, I don't think that's unfair. Do you? No, not at all. It, it certainly does provide a certain amount of competition to the Nutanix of the world and, and the other hyperconverged vendors. Some of them might jump on the bus and say, hey, okay, we, we now have an Azure Stack solution as well. Yeah. And others might try to differentiate with the ways that they integrate with the public cloud or the additional options that they give you for running stuff on-premises that maybe Azure Stack doesn't have. I could see that saying, oh, we've got this delightful HCI you know, model. Let's just add the software bits on top. And like you said, Ned, anything to get that subscription going, <laughs> I doubt they're too religious about what the hardware platform is. It's more just... Are you paying that six dollars per vCPU or not? And if you can check the box to say yes, I am, 
then they're probably thumbs up about it. Yeah, that's definitely Microsoft's approach. Are there certain shops where Azure Stack makes sense or maybe doesn't make sense, like maybe depending on the kind of workload you need to run, where you'd look at it and go, ah, Azure Stack's not really a great platform for that? Well, I guess if you've managed to get a really good instance of OpenStack running in your environment, and bless you if you have, <laughs> then Azure Stack, you might look at that and go, I don't need that. I got OpenStack. I'm good. Another good example would be if you're a VMware and AWS shop and those are the things that you do and you know, uh, you know that VMware on AWS is coming and maybe you just want to keep your engineers focused on those solutions and not even worry about what's going on in Azure. Yeah, I mean, do you think you need to be an Azure pro or, you know, very comfortable with the Microsoft side of things to be effective running Azure stack? Or have they, because we were talking earlier in the show about just how much is hidden from you, how much they just do for you that you can't even get at uh, because they just want this thing. It it sounds like they just want it to work. And so a lot of uh, the technical knob twiddling you might normally have to do is kind of gone. Yeah, they pulled all those knobs off and covered it up with duct tape for sure. Yeah, as long as you're comfortable with Azure services in some regard, then Azure Stack, you're not going to be fiddling around with all those dials. You're just going to be implementing the exact same resource manager templates or PowerShell commands or however you tend to interact with Azure. You're just going to be pointing at a different endpoint rather than having to rewrite a whole bunch of stuff. Okay, Ned, my stack is Azure very well today, so... (laughs) I think I think we're good uh, as far as intro and understanding that my my poor puny feeling home. I think all my servers combined don't even have the power that you're saying I need for <laughs> one ASDK. Uh, sad panda. But okay, appreciate being on the show. I want to thank you very much for the time. And if people want to tickle your social media personas in the future, where can they find you on the interwebs? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Ned1313. I have a LinkedIn profile that you can you know, feel free to reach out. I also have a blog. It's nedinthecloud.com. That one's pretty easy to remember. And I also actually run a podcast, well, two of them sort of, uh, for AnexNet. One's called Anexapod, and that's where I talk to smart people like you, Chris, about topics that are interesting. Yeah. And then another one called Buffer Overflow, which is a biweekly sort of news podcast where me and some other people talk about what's going on in the IT news sphere and maybe poke fun at it a little bit, too. All right. I love it when we poke fun at at ourselves and others, I guess, uh, about weird technical things that we find. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again, Ned. And that's it for today's edition of the Data Nuts podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on the Twitters, and my blog is wallnetwork.com, or my delightful friend Ethan is at ECBanks on the Twitters, and his blog is ethancbanks.com. For more of our Data Notch show about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Notch talking about containers, conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to the cloud, Azure Stack, you name it, we got it. Until then, may your server lights blink, your on-prem cloud be sparkly, and your cables be cleanly managed. I thought I wrote that down. God, we're never inviting this guy back on the show. Oh, oh did no. I say that unmuted? <laughs> I am just, I'm just the worst. Oh, geez. You'll find us talking about poor life choices. <laughs> what? Did gotcha. you just add ah. that? <laughs>